Kareem, Amabar. Today's discussion we're going to have is on Sayyidina Hurdaifa bin al-Yaman radiallahu ta'ala How many of us have heard about Sayyidina Hurdaifa bin al-Yaman radiallahu ta'ala before? What do we know about him? Sayyidina Hurdaifa bin al-Yaman radiallahu ta'ala is known as the secret keeper of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He's known as the person whom the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam entrusted his secrets to. We all have that people in our lives who we can trust with anything. That if we say something to them, that we talk to them, that they will hold our secrets. And when people tell you something by default, it's considered an amana, it's a trust. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said al-majalisu bin amana that all gatherings are trusts. They're trusted. So the default is that something is an amana and it's trust. And one of the signs of hypocrites or munafiqs is that when you trust them with something, they break your trust. There is an exception to this rule. And the exception is one time one of the wives of, of Rasulullah was approached by a woman who had problems with her husband. Her husband was Sayyidina Zayd radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And she said, listen, I need you to talk to the Prophet sallallahu Whatever you do, don't tell him who I am. She said, okay. She goes to the Prophet sallallahu and she asks the Prophet sallallahu a question. The Prophet sallallahu said, whose question is this? So what do you think that wife of the Prophet sallallahu did? She broke the promise. She? She broke the promise. She told the Prophet. She said, Ya Rasulullah, it's Zainab. Where's Zainab? The one who's married to Zainab. <coughs> so the scholars write that besides if your teacher asks you for something, besides, the, and obviously there's benefit to that scenario. In all other scenarios, if a person is told and entrusted with something, then they hold on to that and they don't open and they don't break that. Sayyidina Hudayfa radiallahu ta'ala was the secret bearer of Rasulullah sallallahu he, he has an interesting story. His father, Yaman, is from Makkah Mukarramah. But he killed somebody, so he ran away to Medina. And in the early days, he accepted Islam. Sayyidina Hudayfa radiallahu anhu, when, uh, when they accepted Islam, he comes to the Prophet Sallallahu when the Prophet comes to Medina and he says, Ya Rasulullah, am I Muhajir or am I Ansar? Because I kind of technically did migrate here, but I've been here when you arrived. And the Prophet Sallallahu said, I give you the choice. What do you want to be? And he selected to be amongst the Ansar. He was paired up with a Sahabi by the name of Ahmad ibn Yasir radiallahu anhu. Who was Ahmad ibn Yasir? Why is he special? He was the son of Sumayya radiallahu anha. And why Sumayya radiallahu anha? She was the first martyr. And what was her husband's name? Yasir radiallahu anha. And he was also uh, shaheed as well. So his son Ammar, when he comes to Medina Munawwara, Rasulullah sallallahu pairs them together. Sayyidina Hudayf radiallahu anhu mentions that everybody else would ask the Prophet sallallahu about good things. I'd be the person that would ask the Prophet ﷺ about all the bad things that are going to happen in the Ummah. So he says, he also became known as the Sahabi who knew all the fitnas and who knew the names of the hypocrites and the munafiqeen as well. Nabi ﷺ would tell him that these people are munafiqs. Sayyidina Umar ﷺ one time, a man like Umar ﷺ came and said, Ya Rasulullah, uh, Ya Hudayfa, am I a hypocrite? Am I a munafiq? And he said, no. He said, you're not a munafiq. He said, okay, what is the situation with the fitnas? Am I going to witness the fitnas that are going to come? Because for Hudayfa radiallahu anhu said that the fitnas will trickle onto this ummah the way rain falls down. And it's going to enter every single person's house. So Umar radiallahu anhu says, Hudayfa, am I going to witness this? Am I going to be there? He said, you are the door between this fitna that's coming. You're the door. 
So Ar-Maladiyallahu who says, will this door be opened or will this door be broken? And he said, this door will be broken. Now what is he asking over here? What is the purpose of his question? What is he trying to ask? He will be killed or will die of natural causes. He will, will he die of a natural cause or will he be killed? What was the famous dua of Ar-Maladiyallahu that he did every day? Allahumma rzuqni maut, Allahumma rzuqni shahada fi baladi habibik. Oh my Allah, give me shahada, martyrdom, but in the city of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa which was considered impossible is because in order to get shahada and martyrdom, you have to leave the city and go on battle. So how are you going to become shaheed in what is considered one of the safest cities around? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted them that and he became a shaheed. Hurdaifa radiallahu ta'ala anhu would be the person that if in the books of Ahadith, you'll find him narrate a lot of things about Islamic eschatology, the end of times. He mentions that Rasulullah one time stood on the member and the Prophet all the way till the evening spoke about all the fitnas and the major problems that are about to come into the ummah. Few people remembered, most people forgot. The ones who remembered, they remembered. The rest of the people, they forgot what these, what these uh, fitnas are to be. So, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would entrust Sayyidina Hudayfa radiallahu anhu with the secrets. And I'll tell you one story about him and then we'll get to his advices. He's got some very thought-provoking uh, and remarkable advices. He has a lot of them, but we're going to just go through a few of them, inshallah. In the battle of the trench, Sayyidina Hudayfa radiallahu anhu, the battle of the trench was a difficult battle. They had built a trench around. They didn't have food for days. The famous story of the Prophet ﷺ having the rock tied to his stomach is from that battle. So it was a very difficult battle for them. And on top of that, uh, it, it lasted for a few weeks, for about 20 days. And it, you, you get kind of really tired and it's, it's, it's like if the roads were all closed off, how are you going to go shopping? We can't go to Walmart or Costco and these are just a few minutes away from us. But for them... They would, they, they would rely on people bringing imports and they would also export businesses and a lot of things relied on people from outside. So though they had built a trench, it was also, uh, on the other hand, it was difficult for them as well because supplies were, were diminishing. And the Quraysh, when they came at the time of the Battle of Trench, they brought, it's called the Battle of Ahzab as well, because they brought, the, they unified everybody. And they were like, we're going to go and one time wipe out Medina Munawwar and wipe out the Prophet So they all were there bang, uh, camping outside of the trench. Now, when about 20 days went by, it's, it's the, the night is super cold. It's brick. It's, it's the, the, the Sahaba said like we could, Sayyidina Hadith says, I couldn't even stand up. One thing was, I was incredibly hungry. The second was, it was so cold, you could feel it in the bones. He said, and the Prophet says, I need someone to go and infiltrate the Quraysh side and I need them to bring me back intelligence. And many of the legends of the Sahaba, at this moment it was difficult for even them to volunteer for this time. Because like, we're super tired now. And the most difficult volunteering is the iftari volunteering. <laughs> because you're super hungry that time. And especially if the food is less and the people are more, then your, then your fast is about to be a little extended. And Hadith says, I was sitting down and I was crouched. I couldn't even get up. I was that hungry and that cold and that weak. And the Prophet tells me, he asks around, he says, who is this? Like you couldn't, it was so dark, you couldn't even see. The Prophet says, who are you? He says, Hadifa. Prophet says, you're going to be the one to go to the camp. He immediately he gets up. He said, the Prophet Sarsim does dua for me and gives me his shawl. The moment I put that shawl on, it was as if my entire body warmed up and I felt no cold and all my weakness went away. I then advanced towards, now you're literally going the enemy lines. Survival rate, survival chance is very low. You're one man amongst the entirety of the enemy. And before Hudayfa radiallahu who leaves, the Prophet says, Hudayfa, this is a recon mission. Intelligence only. Don't do anything. He said, okay. 
So he goes there. When they arrived, Hadifa radiallahu anhu says they detected that there was going to be a spy. So Abu Sufyan, he says, I saw a man, black skin, he was warming his hands. And I could tell from the way people around him that he was the chief. And he said, Abu Sufyan tells people, he says, that look, I'm about to disclose something and it's a big secret. And I worry that Muhammad Sallallahu has sent a spy. So therefore, let each person check who the person next to them is to make sure that it's one of us. Or they follow the alarm who's about to be outed because he's in the middle of the crowd. So he said, I quickly grabbed the guy next to him like, yo, who are you? You spy? The guy's like, no, 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 I'm not a spy. I'm telling him. He's like, I startled that guy so much that I was able to just kind of lay low. Abu Sufyan says, look, it's getting cold and we're almost out of supplies and I'm going to retreat and I advise you all to retreat. I hear that the Banu Qurayla inside is going to break their treaty with us. And that's a whole new story of, of, of how the Prophet Sallallahu played the battle of intellects over there. It was a, it was a sheer battle. Uh, it, was, it, it was a war of minds that the Prophet Sallallahu played. And the way the Sahaba did it some other time, inshallah, we'll go over that. He says, I feel like there's going to be, uh, uh, they're going to break the treaty. And where the, the people who we have trusted, they're going to break their treaty and we're going to lose out. So I'm packing my bags. I'm leaving. I advise you all to do the same. So they were, they're all, they're about to leave. They're packing their stuff. And Hurdayfa radiallahu anhu says, as I was going, I saw Abu Sufyan, the main man who's been fighting against us, the military commander, the military leader. And I grabbed my arrow and I locked it in. And as I was about to take him out, because he was in my, he was in my, he was in my eyes. And I just had to pull the trigger. And the words of the Prophet Sarasim came to my mind that said, don't do anything. He's like, put the arrow back and I go back. This Abu Sufyan later becomes radiallahu anhu. He later on accepts Islam. You know, the obedience to the Prophet Sarasim was on a remarkable level. And when I read any of these companion stories, I, I think to myself, every, the Prophet Sarasim takes every one of these people, hundreds of them, and unlocks their greatest potential from inside them. So it's not just, if, if you go to Christianity, it's the same St. Peter, it's the same uh, Mark, Matthew, Luke, it's the same five, ten people. But when you look at our tradition, there's hundreds of them, each a legend in his own right. Each one of them, remarkable lifestyle that if there was no other Sahabi and that was the only one, it was enough for this Ummah. But Ashabi Kan Nujum, a riwayat that has a uh, problem is the Nisnad, but nevertheless attributed to the Prophet Sallallahu that my companions are like the stars. Whichever ones you follow, you'll be guided. So the Sahaba, like each one of your name, different things. Learn about that name. Learn about that Sahabi. Learn about that companion. Then why am I called this? Well, I have names that the Prophet said, name good names. You know the Quraysh, they had an interesting habit. They named their children very scary names. And they named their servants and their ghulams beautiful names. They would say our children is to scare the enemy. And our slaves are for us. So they named their, they named their slaves very good names. And names have an effect on people. There was a person by the name of Hazan, which means depression. And the Prophet Sallallahu told him that, change your name. The Prophet had this habit, right? That when uh, someone would come to him and they'd accept Islam, if the name was bad, he'd change it. He didn't always do this. I know when I was in South Africa uh, last year, after a Jummah, someone said, you know, there's someone here to accept Islam. So, you know, in America, we used to say the Shahada and we go. So I gave the Shahada and I'm leaving. And the person comes up to me and says, Shaykh, you didn't name the person. I said, I'm sorry about that. So that was the culture. And, and, and it has its positive and negatives too. Now, can someone keep a non-Muslim name even though they uh, have accepted Islam? Yes, they can. As long as the name isn't something bad. Names are uh, people's identities. And it's permissible for them to keep it. It's good. It's mustahab to have a, a good Muslim name, but it's not necessary. When a person says shahada, don't go to them immediately and say, uh, so what's it going to be? Khalid, Ahmad? Uh, no, no, no. Let them breathe. Uh, so, Hazan was his name, and the meaning of depression. The Prophet Sarasim said, change your name. He said, I like my name. Sayyidina Musayyib, rahimahullah, says, our family 
had chronic depression for seven generations. So that was the effect that happened on our family. So you see, Yusuf's, Yusuf's are generally good looking. You might have to say the Yusuf are Islam. Obviously, the rule is not 100%, uh, <laughs> but generally speaking. Um, do we have Yusuf's in the crowd? Yeah, it's working on you. <laughs> so Sayyidina Hudayfa radiallahu ta'ala was the secret bearer of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Anyway, his first advice that we're going to go over today is Khalis al-Mu'min wa Khalit al-Kafir wa dinak la taklimannahu Be sincere with believers. Be a sincere person with them. The disbelievers definitely mingle with them. You have to. But don't damage your religion in the process. If, if your friendship is costing your deen, your morals, your ethics, don't hurt and damage your religion just because you're trying to be chummy with someone else. Because you want to be accepted. I don't want to be canceled. So if I don't talk, if, if, if I don't support people's certain decisions, I'm going to be canceled in school. And people will see me differently. No. <laughs> A person is sincere and good with all the believers. Doesn't matter if you like them or you don't. Be sincere with every single believer. Number two, disbelievers you have to mingle with. Be good with them, compassionate with them, be kind to them. But it should not cost you your religion. It should not cost you your values. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَا تَهِينُوا وَلَا تَحْزَنُوا وَأَنْتُمُ الْأَعْلَوْنَ إِن كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ Remember one thing, that don't be someone who is going to be sad or think that I won't have friends. No, alone. you are going to be victorious and you're going to be on top. And at the end, the, 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 the final victory is yours in kuntum mu'mineen. As long as you are believers and you're obedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you will get what is good. Now, a lot of times, what do people do? We... If I'm, if I'm going to, if I need to apply for a job interview. No, if I keep a beard, I'm not going to get hired. So I should shave this off. If I wear my hijab, I'm going to be seen differently. So for a little bit of the dunya, people change a lot. There was a story I remember reading as a kid. That a person, he came and he was applying for a big job. And he had a big sunnah beard. And the person said to him, he said, look, everything checks out. The only one thing is, is that we were talking about this years ago, right? So people weren't as woke as they are now. So he says to them, he says, uh, you, you have all the great qualities that we're looking for, and we're going to hire you. Only problem is, is that our people, when they see this, <coughs> they're not going to be comfortable. So the man goes back, thinks, thinks, thinks. He says, it's a really good opportunity. You know, I'll get the job, but then I'll grow it back up, you know. Whereas some of the brothers say, no, I'm shaving so it grows nicer. <laughs> it's nice before you shave. You, you, you trimmed it. Um, they call it clean shave. Not a clean shave. It, it's, 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 some, it's, it's a blade that gets passed on the heart of the Prophet When the Romans came, when the Persians came to the Prophet and they, they, they didn't have facial hair. They had long mustaches. The Prophet didn't even look at them. He turned his face away. I was, for the people who went to Armorah with him, I told them that there were five ways the Prophet reacted to people when he met them. Ja'far who ran and hugged him. Some he he shook their hands. Some he just glanced at. Some he was sad and upset with. And some he looked away from. And I, I mentioned to them, the Prophet ﷺ, obviously, as we know in the hadith, that uh, uh, that Allah is forbidden on the earth to devour the bodies of the prophets, and that the prophets have a, have a unique life inside their graves. This is from our aqidah, from our belief. And obviously, the Prophet ﷺ is in his grave, and the face is facing qibla. So when people are walking, technically speaking, the gaze of the Prophet would be on us. And it, it, it really scares and, 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 and it brings a lot of fear to my heart as I walk past that, that what if the Prophet turns away and looks away and doesn't want to see me? Because we know that he has a unique lifestyle there. Uh, and the Prophet responds to our salam so he can hear us. 
And that's, that, that's one of the marjazas that Allah has granted the Prophet in his grave. So this man goes and he shaves his beard and he goes back to work the next day. He goes back to the interview and he says, look, uh, I shaved my beard and uh, I'm ready. And they said, that was our final test to test your loyalty and your values. And you failed it. So we didn't care whether you had a beard or you did it. We wanted to see how selfish you were. And therefore, he said, the job is not yours. He lost the dunya and he lost the akhara. Some do it for a girl, some do it for a guy. You know, now a lot of the guys say, you know, if she wears a hijab, no. If she does this, no. If she wears a niqab, no. You become the very reason for other people not practicing the deen. You become the very reason to turn people away from the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect one and all. Mm-hmm. That brings us to the next advice. There's one advice that I missed putting in here. He says, Man lam ya'rif al-ma'ruf biqalbihi uh, This is the one, sorry. A person came to Hudayfa radiallahu anhu and he asked him, he said, Man mayyitul ahya who is dead while still being alive and breathing? Who's dead while they're still, they're still, their heart is still beating? He said, The person whose heart does not understand and truly acknowledge what is right, and their heart doesn't truly know what is wrong. That whether it's good or bad, it's not from the heart. We know the hadith of the Prophet Wasallam. That That whosoever sees something bad, stop it with your hands. If you cannot, then with your tongues. If not, then at least hate it. If you don't hate the sin, then that, that's the weakest level of iman, to hate the sin. Many of us, we may not commit sins, even the good people, the ones who, have, who do more good deeds. But we see sins taking place in videos and shows and and we desire that we were there. And that's what fantasizing is as well. Jehovah, that's, that's me. I was with that person. I would be there. And Abdullah bin Abbas, who talks about in one poem, he says that one is the evil of the person who commits the sin. Then worse than that is the person, after they commit the sin, they tell other people about it. And then worse than that is the person who hears what happened about the party and the wrong the night before and wishes they were there as well. They wish they were present in that, in that gathering as well. They're worse than the person who committed the sin. And they get that same burden despite them not committing the sin. So he says, That the heart, the compass of the heart isn't right. The heart is broken. The heart is hard. Allah has put a curtain and a veil on their hearts. He sealed their hearts. And good isn't coming. They don't see something good and they don't desire for it. They see evil and they're, they're oblivious to it. And that happens if you think back to the first advice who says, Be sincere and have good company. And with the disbelievers, especially when the morals are not in line with what Allah and His Messenger say, then be careful it's because then you, becomes, you become desensitized to it. You, it becomes normalized. And you become, you, you, then you call yourself an open-minded. You're open-minded, but hard-hearted. But the heart has been sealed. The mind isn't open. The mind is, is it's, it's, it's been polluted. And now you don't, your, your, your heart is not gravitating and you, you see wrong and you become oblivious to it. And, and you no longer acknowledge what is right. The Sahaba, they weren't people who were phased like this. They could see right through. You know, the other day, there was a video of a Mulana. You know, mashallah, I don't really have a habit of like calling people out. But this one was a little too much. <coughs> the Mulana was like, brothers, you know why the imams and scholars are fat? <laughs> he said, because a time came in the Ummat. You saw this? 
I've seen it. I scrolled past it. You scrolled it? You see it more now? He says, a time came in this ummah where people said, if my child becomes Hafiz or Alim, who can ain't They're going to stay hungry. What are they going to eat? So Allah wanted to prove everyone wrong. So he made all the Mulanas fat. He said, you eat two times a day, they eat four times a day. They have all the dawats and everything. He said, this is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I said, oh my God. I said, I've heard like some pretty crazy things in my life. But this one is definitely going to be memorable. And, the, and, he, and he says, he says, wallahi, I believe this. It's not even like he was like making a joke. Like, you know, no, he genuinely believed it. Uh, and um, and Sayyidina Umar one time saw really a guy who was just indulgent. Now, one thing is that it's, it's a physical situation and a struggle and something. And, something and, and that person is obviously excused. We're talking about a situation where a person has the ability to, to kind of work on themselves and, and they don't. And, and, and they're just eating and they're just being indulgent and that's what we're talking about. So a man came and this guy was just really obese. And Umar al was like, what the heck is this? Mahada. He looks and he says, Al-Baraka. <laughs> he said, no, this is a adab. This is a punishment. Right? So it's, it's, it's some people, then they, they, their mentality goes in such a way that just because I do it, I'll find an excuse to make it sound right. And they weaponize the deep. And they weaponize emotions. Why? Because I need to make other people see what I'm doing is right. That you, you know, and, and, and the true heart can see wrong, sense it immediately. See good and sense it. What you guys call good vibes. <laughs> right? That's, that's, that's what the, 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 the true heart is. Rasulullah said in a hadith, no prophet was sent in my ummah before, but uh, in no ummah before me, but they had supporters and companions. They would follow his sunnah. And they would follow his command. But then they left behind a lot, they left behind people. They would say things, but they would not act upon it. And they would do what they don't command other people for. The one who fights them with his hands, he is a true believer. And the one who combats them with his tongue, he is a true believer. And the one who hates them with, his, with their heart, that's a believer. And besides that, if you don't even despise the wrong that people are doing, doesn't matter how famous they are, or how popular they are, it's not going to change anything. If a person doesn't even have this, then they don't even have a grain or an atom's weight of iman. Someone said the other day, they said, you know, I, uh, alhamdulillah, I listen to Muslims, uh, Muslim music because, you know, I'm, it's, it's, it's a Muslim brother. That's, that doesn't change anything. Whether a Muslim does it or not a Muslim does it. Wrong is wrong. Don't make excuses for it. If you can stop something with your hands, stop it with your hands. If you cannot, at least with your tongue, speak out against it. If not, at least with your heart. And the Prophet ﷺ said, in the end of times, the, 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 the culture of people will change. There's a lot to cover, as always. We'll go over quickly, inshallah. Hurdayfa says, Beware of the fitna that will not spare anybody. He said, Wallahi, when this fitna comes, it will be like a dirty flood. He doesn't just say a regular flood because water is also seen as a good concept in the deen. But he says a filthy flood that just <coughs> drenches everybody around it. <inaudible> it will be something that would be very confusing when it comes. <inaudible> Until the ignorant person says, <inaudible> This seems like this fitna is coming. <inaudible> but this fitna is actually leaving. <inaudible> when you see the world has become like this, 
then learn to stay home. Break your swords, your weapons. And discombobulate your tents. What does this mean? Don't travel anywhere. Who's saying a time will come where there will be so much fitna that every person will be affected by it on some level. And people will think that the world is becoming better. That, oh, this fitna that's come out, oh, this is leaving. This, you know, this, this problem, we've solved it. Or that, you know, people will say that, oh, this, 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 uh, this fitna that has come to us right now, this fitna is coming. But no, 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 this fitna is actually leaving. A bigger fitna is coming right now. And you, you are so uh, unprepared to deal with the fitnas at hand that you think that you've solved these problems, but there's far more that's coming towards you. And over here, the Sayyidina Hudayf is telling us, and we're all in it, right? You open your phone. It's, it's, it's hard pressed to go one day without your eyes seeing something, even by accident scrolling, besides the one who's staying at home and protecting and guarding themselves and, and, and really building those barriers around them. That your iman is constantly being attacked to the point that you no longer feel it, to the point that no longer it, 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 it gets to you. And Sayyidina Hudayf radiallahu ta'ala anhu talks about this. And he says in another hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says that there are certain fitnas that it won't spare anybody, but it will be like a blowing wind that every single person will get affected by it. And every single person will, will, will be trapped by it and they won't be able to uh, avoid it. And even the good people, they're going to be the people that are going to be victims of this. Hassan Basri rahimahullah says, Inna al-fitnata idha aqbalat. When fitna start rising, the alim, the scholars, they can identify it. But the jahil only recognizes the fitna as the fitna is leaving and a new fitna is coming. See, the scholar is able, there's a, there's a concept in sharia called saddan lil-bab or saddan Does anyone know what this means? It's a very big concept, in, especially when we give fatwa, we utilize this. Saddan lil-bab or saddan barar. Anyone know? Saddan lil-bab literally means to close the door. Why? It's because if the door is opened, a lot more wrong and harm and bad is going to come. So in order to break that uh, uh, harm coming in, it's called saddan lil-bab. So for example, in the Quran, does Allah say anywhere, don't commit zina? He never says, La tazni in the Quran. What does he say? Don't even come near it. So even the first step, they realize that no, if we open this door, it will lead to this. So Saddan Lilbab. So scholars from, from the onset, especially the ones who Allah has blessed with wisdom, they can see scenarios and then realize this is going to create fitna in the community. And for the generation to come, this is going to be a problem. And therefore they take their actions at that moment. They're proactive. The jahil is reactive. When the problems are already there, then they try to save the situation. But by then it's too late. Sayyidina Hudayfa radiallahu anhu says, That good is difficult. It is heavy. And besides it being difficult, it is beneficial and healthy. You know, like healthy food, quinoa, and all of these things. Oh my God, salad. <laughs> but it's good for you. It's difficult, but it's good for you. Meal prep, it's hard, but it's good for you. Evil is always easy. But even though it's easy, it's a disease. Soda is very easy, but it's still a disease. I know I drink it. <laughs> and then he says, Leaving a sin is much easier than to keep asking Allah to forgive you. And sometimes pleasures of a few moments they will inherit a lifetime of regret and sadness. 
یہ جبر بھی دیکھا تاریخ کے نظروں نے لمحوں نے خطا کی تھی صدیوں نے سزا پائی وی سا دیٹ دس واز دا رول آف ہسٹری دیٹ مومنٹس میک مسٹیکس بٹ لائف ٹائمس پے دا پرائس یو گوئنگ آن دا ہائی وے یو مس دی ایگزٹ وٹ یو ہیو ٹو ڈو آل دا وے اراؤنڈ دیٹ ون سیکنڈ مسٹیک کاسٹ اے لاٹ اٹس ناٹ اے ون سیکنڈ یو کین جسٹ انلس یو پلینگ نیڈ فار اسپیڈ اور ماری پارٹ I met a person who came to me and it was a happy occasion. It was, it was a wedding. His family member had gotten married in that wedding. He came and said, I need to talk to you. I said, sure. And while I'm sitting and talking to him, his eyes began to well up with tears. And he said, what is Tawbatul Nasuha? I said, Tawbat Nasuha is sincere Tawbat. There's a crazy story behind Nasuha was a man who uh, infiltrated the girl's bathroom. And then uh, uh, he used to you know, create straight creep. Um, and then the, the princess, she said, you know, that day she ended up coming to the bathroom, her mom, as they call it, and she lost her ring. And then everyone was like, okay, we have to check everybody. And he got really scared. He did some really sincere toba. And then uh, Allah forgave him and find the thing that story is not really true. Nasuha generally means sincere. Um, so I ex- explained to him and he starts crying and he says that, uh, yeah, he's like, that's all I care about, that my sins get forgiven. And before I say this story, I'll tell you another story. I had a friend of mine who I know for a very long time. Sunday, his mother passed away. Saturday or Sunday? Sunday, his mother. Saturday, his mother passed away. <clears throat> and he's a very close friend, so I called him to console him. And he's a very emotional guy. Very emotional. But the moment I called him, I hear, As-salatu wassalamu alayka, uh, alhamdulillah, was-salatu wassalamu alayka, uh, I'm like, man, I was like, this guy's voicemail is like super long, right? I was like, I'm just trying to give my condolences. And while I'm hearing this, I hear the pause, I'm waiting for the beep. And then, because uh, then he, it ended off by saying that this is my greeting, what is yours? So I'm like waiting for the beep, right? And I'm like, hello? And he's like, yeah, psycho. And I was like, you okay? He's like, alhamdulillah, I'm okay. I've seen a lot of scholars being composed after like, you know, very pious people. Laymen and laywomen, very rarely in my life I have seen them composed after losing a loved one. Very rarely. It's, it's definitely the, the most difficult days of uh, that person's life. And he was so upbeat and positive. And he disclosed a lot of things. And like, I was just blown away. And then at the end of our conversation, I was like, okay, I have to get ready and head to class. So I'm about to grab my keys. And I'm like, I just want to leave you with these final words that if this is how positive you are in the dunya, then I have, you know, only Allah knows, but I believe that in the hereafter, you're in a good situation. And then he just starts breaking down crying. And he says, I'm scared of that day. Like, this is a kid who served his mom for 20, 30 years and, like, did everything he could. And he was like, he literally told me, like, the day before my mom's been in coma for 89 days, he's like, I did throw out to Allah, Ya Allah, my mother's in a lot of pain, please take her away. He said, and my mother, Allah is so kind, he listened to my dua. But when I said that about the hereafter, he literally, like, five to seven minutes, like, he was just crying on the phone and he was like, I can't disappoint my Allah. Like, I'm really scared of my Allah. Like, I don't want to do anything that would upset my Allah. And he just kept on mentioning that. And I, and it really just wrenched my heart to see like the level of that person's Iman. Anyway, so I'm at this wedding and there's this person, he starts tearing up. And then he says that, I just want to know if Allah will forgive me. So I turned to the brother, I was like, if, I was like, uh, he was like, I'll tell you what the sin is. And I said, don't disclose your sin to me. 
I said, but can I ask a question? I don't mean to be insensitive. He said, uh, what's the question? I said, how old are you? I think he said about 75 or 78. I said, I don't want to know the sin, but I just want to ask how old you were when you committed the sin. He said, so I was very young. I said, how old? Is it 13, 14, 15? He said, yes, about that age. And it just 60 years of regret that even on a happy day, he's breaking down crying because of a sin that he committed in his youth. May Allah grant us all the ability to do sincere and proper tawbah. And then Sayyidina Hudayfa radiallahu anhu says, when you see something haram with your eyes, it scars and it wounds the heart. Then when you keep on looking, it keeps on stabbing and wounding the heart. Then once it, it becomes so much, you no longer feel the pain. You no longer, your heart no longer feels the regret or the disgust of the sin. And when it happens too much, then you have just become uh, 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 numb to sin. And you've just become a person whose heart is just wounded and shattered and broken, but you think everything's going all right, but you're just walking around heartless. You're walking around with a hard heart that, that just that will not get khayr inside it. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us one and all. Sayyidina Hudayfa radiallahu anhu was asked, Atarakat Banu Israel dinaha fi yawmin wahid? Did Banu Israel abandon their religion all in one day? He said, no. When they were told to do good, they wouldn't unless they would, they would abandon it. They wouldn't follow through. But when they were forbidden from something, the words he uses isn't that they would do it. He uses the word rakiba. Rakiba literally means to ride something. How people say ride the wave? He's rakibu. Even the haram things, they would just ride the wave and ride the moment and just and they would just go through with it. And finally, they exited their deen the way a person slowly takes their shirt off. That is how they had been exited and they had been removed from their deen. That a person slowly, slowly <coughs> starts to become so far from the deen that they have nothing left about their Islam but their name. It starts with that small, small actions. You hear good, you don't do it. You hear bad, you don't do it. And slowly, you transform into a new person. That's why it's always important to keep yourself in check or your own spirituality, to constantly do your muhasaba, your muraqaba, to have tarbiyah with your teachers. It's, it's constantly important to keep yourself in check. Otherwise, you end up getting so distant that you never recognize yourself. They say that the student who's attached uh, to their teacher is like the leaf that's attached to the tree. The roots of where they got their iman and their faith from and their knowledge. When that leaf is disconnected, as long as that leaf is connected, it will grow into something. It will keep growing. But the moment it gets detached, then it no longer has its growth and it has its, its death over there. Final one for today, inshallah. What is considered good today was the evil of the past. This is a companion who the Prophet told about the future. One time, Umar came to him and he said, Are any of my governors hypocrites? He said, Yes, one of them. He's a monophilic, the Prophet told me. So Ramadan who says, what's his name? I remember the one who gave the secret was above Ramadan status. So he didn't divulge it. Versus when Ramadan, the Prophet asked that woman, and Sayyidina Hadith says, I can't tell you. So then Ramadan who went and fired one of his governors. And then Hadith Radiyallahu Anhu said, Armar, it was as if Allah guided your heart to it. 
Like that's, are they for the ones not just, his advice aren't just, they're coming from a man who has a vision into the future till the end of times. He's the main narrator of these things. What does he say? What you think is good today was considered evil back in the day. And he says, what is considered evil today or like bad today was considered good before. And there's a plethora of examples of this. If somebody eats with their hands, disgusting. It's considered good at the time the Prophet If someone follows certain sunnahs, this person's untidy, they're like this. That time was considered good. And what is considered good today and normalized today is considered evil at that time. Then he says, You will continue to be on the right path as long as you know what is the truth. And you don't see your scholars as something that is a degraded group of people. When you start seeing that, then Allah will take khair away from you. Today, Imam Ghazali, there's a few things and we'll wrap up. I know we're a little late today. Imam Ghazali say, centuries ago, he's so right. A lot of the things that are considered good today were considered evil in the time of the Sahaba. Now imagine our time. You see, the Sahaba, they truly knew their Allah. So even a small sin in front of them was considered to be the worst thing ever because they understood how great their Allah was. We don't understand how great Allah is. That's why we don't get how bad our sins are. Even the worst sins we see as light is because we didn't truly recognize how great our Lord is. Abdullah bin Mubarak rahimahullah says, Man istakhaffa bil ulama dhahabat akhiratuhu That that person who considers scholars or ulama or studying the deen to be something that is not valuable or it's istakhaffa means to not give importance to it or belittle it or not have respect for it dhahabat akhiratuhu His akhira will leave him meaning he will be a loser in the hereafter. Ibn Asaka rahimahullah says Luhumul ulama masmuma. He says that the flesh of scholars is poisoned. What does that mean? That a person who backbites them, it's poisoned. And the, and, and, and the habit of Allah is that the person who talks ill of scholars, he says, He says, Ibn Asakir is a historian. Tariq Ibn Asakir is a big historian. So when a historian says, he says that, the habit of Allah is that the one who harms scholars, backed by scholars, speaks ill of them. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes an example out of them. That's what he is saying over here. And I've seen it with my own eyes. I've been in a lot of masjids and I've seen a lot of communities. And I've seen that especially the people, or sometimes they're the higher up the board members, the ones that make the scholar's life difficult, I've seen that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala breaks their home up. Allah shatters their home. I've seen with my own eyes numerous people, numerous homes, that Allah destroys the fabric of their house because they spoke ill, Ill of other scholars or they harmed other scholars. And many of them are awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Many of them are good people. We don't, we just know them. I'm not talking about the celebrity ones. I'm not talking about the popular ones. No. I'm talking about the regular person who's teaching Quran. Talking about all of them, it's just not what every alim we give respect to, every scholar we give respect to, and that brings me on to a tangent which I'm not going to go too much into detail. But we have to, there, there is a visible difference between a person who's an actual scholar who spent the time and energy and studied for years on end versus the one who's taken a weekend course or studied from few shifts and just been titled Ustad, and they've just been titled this thing just so that they can. Uh, make some money or they have some respect or they have some honor or something. Yes, there's a different story of someone who spent years of their life in studying the deen. I'm not talking about your dad. Spends years of their life. You know, his, his father is uh, 
very connected to Sheikh Hamza and has been with them since the 90s. Right? So he's Ustad Fahim, he's, he's an exception to the rule. I've been trying to get, in, get a response from Imam Zaid Shakir for two years now. <laughs> every student, everything. I messaged him in like two, three seconds, I got a response back. I got a no, but still, <laughs> I got the response back quick. And I said, you know, that's the connection they have. So his, that is the, ex the exception. But the general thing is that almost everybody just takes this garb now. Ustad is like, it's like, go to any seminary, go to any place, and now that person is teaching and that we weren't allowed to teach for years after studying full-time. It was because, no, first be a student first. And now this culture has become very prominent, especially in our community and other places, that an ustad is equated to a scholar. There's a massive difference. One person, God knows what they studied, if they studied. The other person actually has sanad and ijaz and has put through that effort and put through that time. And the other one, starting classes, starting courses, starting institutes, this isn't the way of any of the scholars of the past. They never did this. That's why Abdullah bin Mubarak says, If people didn't have chains and ijazah, like, people someone came to me and they said, Oh, I have ijazah in, uh, in Arabic. I said, There is no such thing as ijazah in Arabic. One guy said, Oh, I have ijazah in, in this book. I said, Do you even know how ijazah works? Ijazahs are, are done in hadith. A person gets their chain to the Prophet of hadith. Where did you learn Arabic from? Ismail al Islam? From Banu Jurham, your, 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 your ijazah goes there? Quran, yes, Quran has a system of ijazah. Yes. Ifta has not an unbroken chain. Some have it to Muhammad, but generally the teacher gives them permission, then that's different. But for the large majority of people, that the deen that comes to you should come from a credible source, from someone who truly has a knowledge. Otherwise, they'll say things that are inaccurate. Anyhow, I went way above my time today. I thought making a presentation would save time. Subhanakallah, alhamdulillah, wa ilaha illa 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 wa il